Lottie, say, pop psychology. Pop psychology. Say, pop psychology. Pop psychology. Good job. Hmm? Like I like the crap out of that shit. <laughs> Welcome to Pop Psychology, a podcast about psychology and pop culture. We take stuff from pop culture and we chew on it with our brains and we try to figure out why characters think the way they do and where their minds come from and then we talk about it. We chew it up with our brains and poop it right into your ears. Through our mouths. (laughs) I'm Jared Parker. And I'm Scott Parker. And we're the hosts of this podcast. We're the only ones that even are part of it. Yep, just the two of us, two white males. Well, speak for yourself. Well, you're a white male too. Yeah, you're right. I am. <clears throat> um How's it going? What have you been up to? Uh okay, I got to get out of radio voice. <laughs> um what have I been up to? I had a dream last night where I was in a prison and I was innocent and I was trying to tell people that I was innocent, but no one would listen. It's actually a recurring dream. Really? I've had it before. Yeah. We should um we should do Jurassic Park uh-huh. in an episode. Not so much because I feel like it would be particularly good for this show. Mm-hmm. You know, like what what's the psychology of Jurassic Park? Mm-hmm. But just because I have recurring Jurassic Park dreams. Yeah. Like there was a period of time where um, I was having like, I don't know, three or four a month, mm-hmm. you know? And it's all like scrambling around on roofs, trying to stay away from raptors, making sure the doors are locked, like that kind of thing. And it's not super scary. It's kind of adventurous, it yeah. feels like. And interestingly, I would have these dreams, especially leading up to like the release of like a Jurassic Park film in the mm-hmm. last couple of years, which I don't know. It's, it's probably just my um, inner child mm. just really excited. Uh-huh. You know, like you me, have a strong inner child. Me personally, I'm not that excited about kind of the recent Jurassic Park films. Yeah. Because I don't think they're very good. Mm. And it just seems like whoring. The franchise for money, you know, uh-huh. beating a dead horse. No offense, Chris Pratt. Um, but my inner child is just unfazed by any of that. And it's uh-huh. just incredibly stoked it's about like, it. Did you see that pterodactyl? Oh, it's incredible. I heard in the next one, they're going to have a, a, a more Dilophosaurus. Oh my gosh. That's my inner child. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. What do you think it means? Um... Well, you're not scared of the dinosaurs? No, it's not a terrifying dream, you know? Yeah. Huh. Like, I have, like, you know, I've had nightmares where I wake up, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, where in the dream it's terrifying. It doesn't... Yeah, it's not that... Mm. It, yeah. It's hmm. not that It's not that affectively charged, yeah. you know? Yeah. Which is interesting. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I want to say... How are we doing on... 
I'm too close. Yeah, you're. I mean, when I was listening to our last recordings, our our P's sounded very punctual, plosive. Yeah, it was felt very plosive. So I really feel like we can even back it up a little bit. It was a little. Oh yeah. Okay. Maybe even maybe even a little more than a two. Whatever. Two fists. Okay, let's see. I mean, let me. I can just check the levels while we do this. Two fists. Two fists fasted. A fist fast full of friendship. Well, yeah. So let's try that and just see. I mean, the levels look good on here. Okay. What about my levels? Do they they look pretty good or what? Yeah, they do. Um. Um. Okay. Ask me again. What's going on lately? What's going on lately? I got a hamster. Say more. Well, what does want, the hamster mean to you? Well, that's the thing. I wanted to bring that up because this film that we watched, Grizzly Man, uh, is about a guy with a unique, you know, relationship with animals. And I think I'm a bit of an odd duck when it comes to my relationship with animals too, but not as much as Timothy. But I feel like I could kind of relate to him. <clears throat> or they're gonna make a documentary about you called Hamster Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. About how hamster man, you eventually got killed by hamsters. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, yeah. So I guess this podcast is for people who have seen Grizzly Man because they're spoilers. Yeah, although I don't know what how you can have spoilers because mm. it seems like if you are aware of this film, yeah. You are aware that he got eaten by bears. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're probably It's like right. the premise. It's like in the trailer. It's yeah. not like there was a man living on the edge and who knows what happened to him. Wait and see. You right, know? right, right. It's more like there's this guy and he had a tragic death. Yeah, know? okay, that's true. Um, <clears throat> have you, you've seen this before. Yeah. What's your history with this film? I've seen it before. And then I saw it last night. How many, just, just once before? I've seen it like three or four times. Uh, I think just once before, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one. It's one of my favorite documentaries, actually. Yeah. I really. First of all, I just like hearing Werner Herzog talk. Yeah. And I could. I want him to read me bedtime stories or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just he's so his uh, his idiolect is is so um, powerful. Yeah, but not uh, not just. I feel like not just his idiolect, but. His idiolect way of viewing the world. Idiolect means his own personal accent. Yeah. Because obviously he has a German accent, but he also has a Werner Herzog accent. Yeah, totally. Anyway, I learned that from watching a YouTube video. Yeah, it's like the dialect, idiolect. but idiosyncratic to one person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, his way of looking at the world. Like, any, if you gave all these um, videos of Timothy Treadwell to, you know, any other documentarian, it would have been completely different right right you now yeah yeah um so here's a little you know this is this podcast is not about like the filmmaking Film and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff but i'll just say this um it almost wasn't made by Werner herzog mm-hmm. apparently v- Werner mm-hmm. was hanging out with a friend of his who's a director and producer for like discovery channel films mm-hmm. and that guy had the timothy treadwell footage Uh and like showed Werner like an hour of it Uh I forget if it was something they had cut together or just an hour of kind of raw footage and was telling Werner about how he was making a film about Timothy Treadwell and (laughs) 
this this is from an interview that Werner Herzog gave. He says that he just uh, went silent, and then he said, "I will make this film." <laughs> <laughs> and the guy was like, uh, "Okay." Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's he like, like took it. From I am so- Werner, and you'll make you let me make this film. Yeah, I will make this film. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you know, classic. So before Werner. we go into psychoanalyzing uh, the main character Timothy Treadwell. I just want to say, if you haven't seen this, this film is really good, and Werner Herzog's stuff is really good. And I think that what he touches every documentary he makes with his worldview, which is kind of one of just like awe mm. and wonder at and finding the beauty in like the everyday and finding little meanings in just little. He could find meaning in a trash bag blowing in the wind. And in fact, he does. He narr- he uh, he plays a trash bag in uh, in this beautiful little um short film ab- about a tr- a trash bag like floating through earth over the course of like 200 years and he's like narrates the mind of the trash bag. Ah, uh, really? Yeah, it's that's super cool. good. And it's just like a student film. Right. And that's another thing about Werner Herzog is He's like recognized as one of the best filmmakers in the in the world, but he cares nothing about like the prestige or glamour of right. the projects that he works Which is on. why he's like does a cameo on Rick and Morty. He does yeah. a cameo on, on uh Parks and Rec. Yeah. Which is one of my, one of my favorite cameos of all time. Yeah. yeah. I here's here's what I like about this film and Werner Herzog um his take on it. I feel like the like you said, if you gave anyone else this footage, they would have cut together an entirely different film. Yeah. And I think part of what I like about Werner Herzog is that he has this profound curiosity um, and empathy um, and compassion for for other people. Yeah, for the subjects of his films, and so it really feels like in this film he's trying to he's watched all this footage and he's come to really like care for timothy treadwell yeah you know yeah and um he wants us to see him as he sees him yeah you know yeah so there's this stretch at the beginning of the film where he's kind of interviewing all these people about what they think about timothy treadwell and they're all pretty harsh you know Mm -hmm. just like he was a nut job and he's so disrespectful of the animals and all that kind of stuff and Werner herzog um he is kind of unflinching at his um at looking at kind of the oddness the 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 flaws yeah. of Timothy Treadwell but he wants to help you to be able to understand him yeah. still yeah you know yeah it's like the other people who call him a nut job and stuff they're not trying to understand him Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I just really appreciate that. I feel like it's a it's a great, um, it's a master class in I don't know unconditional positive regard or something. Yeah. To tie back to psychology. Yeah. Totally. So, so that's a Carl Rogers uh, therapy term. Yeah. Of just the way that you respond in a therapy session to what people are saying. You know. Yeah. You don't. You know. Withdraw. You don't say ugh. Yeah. You, ugh. You know. You're, you're, you know, you're accepting of them as they are completely. Yeah, totally. Almost like you love them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause yeah. 
especially if he's very tolerant of weirdness, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, shall we t- tell a little, just like what, who is Timothy Treadwell and what this is about? Sure. Yeah. So Timothy Treadwell is, um, a he kind of came on the national stage as like a bear activist. You know, mm. he would um, come back from these. He would spend all of his summers, mm-hmm. not all of them, but, you know, he spent like 10, 10 summers um, in a in 13. This, oh, really? Yeah. 13 summers, 13 summers um, in the backwoods of Alaska um, with grizzly bears living with them, filming them. He filmed them for like, what, five, the last five years? Is that what it was? He brought a a camera and he would kind of film himself and film them. And then he would come back and, um, you know, he got a little bit of uh, press attention for being kind of eccentric. Like he's on Letterman at some point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone, he's a curiosity Mm because he's living with, it's like, why are you living with grizzly bears? Are you crazy? You know? Yeah. And, um, but he would do educational stuff and advocate for grizzly bears. And he was kind of controversial because he was, you know, living with grizzly bears. And his in his, in his footage, it seemed like he was kind of pushing some boundaries and getting kind of dangerously close and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And then he, um, do you, what, what year was it? Do you know? When he was killed? Yeah. No. So early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. He um, gets killed by, him and his girlfriend get get uh, killed by a grizzly bear. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And um, he he leaves like a hundred hours of footage mm-hmm. that he's, that he's shot, you know. And so the documentary is Werner Herzog got access to that footage, watched all of it, and then um, cuts together you know, uh, Timothy Treadwell's footage of the bears, his kind of monologuing to the camera, mm-hmm. um, as, as well as interviews with his parents, interviews with his friends, interviews with a, an ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. and then also interviews with people who were kind of associated with the discovery of his death. He interviews the coroner. He interviews the guy that would fly him out, you know, into the outback. Yeah. And, uh, and all that. Is that a good summary? Uh, yeah. So with this film, um, I in the last episode I talked about two kind of kind of main themes of the podcast. One of them is kind of psychological apologetics. Yeah. Where we take characters from films and uh, whatever. Yeah. And we try to explain what might be going on in their psyche in a way that makes the film more enjoyable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then the and then the second one is just talking about how uh, connections we're seeing between what we see in films or media we're consuming and what we're learning in psychology or what we've seen in the past in psychology, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like this one is kind of more of the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking, at least for me, talking about connections that I'm, that I'm seeing, you know, this is a real guy. I feel like it'd be a little, a little disrespectful to kind Mm -hmm. of be too 
psychoanalytic. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Or to um, what's the word? Cavalier. Sure. Yeah, I think it's so. Like Werner wouldn't appreciate that. Right. Plus, I don't really, um, I don't really have that much. You know. Well, I think Werner kind of gets at it. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So I mean, I don't have that much by way of like figuring out the underlying mm-hmm. origin of the psychic dynamics. You know what I'm saying? That's what I mean. I have a, yeah. I have, there's a couple things that, that I feel like just um, uh, psychological, like there are a couple things where I feel like the film displayed some interesting stuff that I want to talk about. But not so much like the origin of kind of his... Mm-hmm. Pathology, uh huh. You know, yeah. Well, um, so Timothy was very interesting. He was very close with the bears, but he also had he had a very idealized uh, view of the bears and of nature, mm-hmm. and a very um, negative view of like the world of people and mm-hmm. society. Right. Right. You know, and um and there is kind of an uh an ideology for that suggested which is he he is an addict or um or st- struggled with addiction and um with drugs and alcohol. And it was getting to a, a rock bottom place mm-hmm. when he uh, discovered these grizzlies and yeah. hung out with them. And um, it seems like as he started to create this narrative, this new life narrative, which was um, like a new identity, which is I am a silent warrior. Mm hmm. I it's my mission to protect mm-hmm. these bears and I will protect them and in return they will give me a kind of spiritual transformation mm-hmm. right that will keep me sober mm-hmm. right kind of a thing. yeah let me um let me let me back up yeah. I want to get to that but let me just back up really quick yeah Can't, let's start by talking about um this the symptoms yeah i guess what what struck me in this film watching it for like the third or fourth time i don't know why i kind of never noticed this before was how how out there timothy treadwell seemed you know i guess i never really ha- never really appreciated how delusional he yeah. seems he seems really delusional oh yeah he seems really delusional he seems delusional about him, himself he says stuff like i will not be hurt Mm-hmm. Because kind of I have the will. Yeah. I have the, it, it's like I have the authority or something. Not authority. Yeah. Like the I, love. Well, the love, but also when you, he has this stuff at the beginning of the film where he talks about when you're tested. Yeah. You, that 
then you know most of the time I'm 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 peaceful and the bears don't bother me but sometimes they confront me and in that I need to I'm strong and I'm powerful and they can sense that and that's why they will yeah. back down you yeah know? so there's that kind of stuff there's kind of almost uh, delusional beliefs about his connection to the bears mm-hmm. you know they know who he is they yeah. trust him um and there's a great part in the film where you know he and his girlfriend are hanging out with a bear and it, there's like close up on the bear's face and on the mm-hmm. bear's eyes and Werner's like yeah yeah and Werner's like he sees a connection with the bear and i uh all, all i see is in the indifference of nature no he says like um uh the curious eyes of a predator, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the partially bored, yeah. Uh, you know, eyes of uh, like a partially bored interest in food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually a a theme in many of Werner Herzog's films is his belief that nature is actually uh, chaos, chaos, and death. Yeah, it's like a, it's like this grotesque. You know, un, the yeah. the common denominator, the, the common denominator in nature, yeah. yeah, is is chaos and destruction and death. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is interesting. Um, so other other stuff that you could consider to be symptoms, um, at the towards the end of the film, which is kind of towards the end of his, you know, Alaska adventures, um, he gets kind of increasingly paranoid. Yeah. You know, there's that whole segment where these people, um, tourists, kind of show up in his area for a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then they leave, and one of them writes a note that says, like, see you next summer, Timothy, and Mm -hmm. he's like, it's some kind of threat. Yeah. You know, it's so sinister. You know, or they leave, they they draw a smiley face Uh on, like, a rock, and he's like, it's staring at me. You know, it's some kind of, it's even creepier than if they had just explicitly threatened to murder me, you know? yeah. Which to me also seems kind of delusional. Oh yeah, know? totally. Um, he became increasingly kind of unable to function in human society. Yeah, Werner Herzog talks about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he has he has um, labile moods. Is that how you say that word? Uh, yeah. So they talk about kind of ups and downs. In some places, he seems kind of elated. In other places, he seems pretty depressed. He's mm-hmm. kind of all over the map with yeah. regards to that. Yeah. Um, and then there's the substance abuse stuff, mm-hmm. which took place before he came uh, out with the bears. And he describes it, you know, that like he felt like he was going to, it was going to kill him. Like yeah. what he was doing, it wasn't like a small problem. What he was doing was was gonna kill him. Yeah. So I I, I actually do have a diagnosis that I want to bring up and just see what you think about. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So I mean, and this is kind of, I mean, they almost just say it. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, bipolar one was what what came to mind for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'll read. So bipolar one is. Um, you need to have at least one manic episode and at least one major depressive episode. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, I think maybe all you need is a manic episode in order to have bipolar yeah. one. But let me let me just read to you the the manic um, uh, 
symptoms, a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated expansive or irritable mood and abnormally and persistently increased goal-directed activity or energy lasting at least one week and present most of the day nearly every day. During the period of mood disturbance and increased energy or activity, three or more of the following symptoms. Um, one, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity. Check. Two, decreased need for sleep. We don't know. Three, more, po- more talkative than usual or pressure to keep talking. We kind of don't know. Yeah. Four, flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing. We kind of don't know. Yeah. Distractibility, increased goal-directed activity, um, either socially at work or sexually, or psychomotor agitation. Um, I don't know about that one. Excessive involvement in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. Yeah, check. Triple check. Yeah. Um, the, and then also the mood disturbance has to be uh, sufficiently severe to cause uh, impairment in social occupational functioning. Um, it's not attributable to the site, the effects of a substance, um, and it has to be kind of pathological. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, to me, a lot of this stuff he probably has th- at least three of those. Sure. Well, you just need, yeah, you just need three. Self-esteem, but I grandiosity. You have to have at least some psychosis. No, not necessarily. Uh huh. Um, in order for it to be a manic episode, you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, not necessarily, although that can, people who have manic episodes can kind of yeah. get so far out there. And it can, it can, one of the differential diagnoses for uh, bipolar one is schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Let me just double check. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, it's not one of the listed ones, but I mean, a manic episode can kind of put you so far out there that it looks psychotic. Uh-huh. People yeah. who have bipolar disorder can think the government's watching them, and or... and actually hallucinate. Right, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, I mean, they talk about this. I mean, they almost just say it. You know, at a certain point, his ex girlfriend talks about how. You know, he was on they, he was on medication at a certain point, but then stopped taking it. And he mm-hmm. said that it's because he he needs the highs and the lows. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's, that's what right. he says. Yeah. Which is a pretty common um, feature of bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nice not to have the depressive episodes, but people tend to miss the manic episodes. Yeah, because yeah. it's just you know increased energy you feel like you're getting all these great and amazing and transformative ideas you feel yeah. powerful you feel efficacious yeah. you know yeah you, you repaint your whole house you you know all that kind of stuff yeah yeah and uh so i Interesting. mean so i feel like that's kind of going on definitely um this is another area though where i feel like the dsm diagnosis um is is helpful but can you know kind of shut down further investigation yeah because it doesn't necessarily shed light on the content right the meaning of the content yeah the meaning yeah um yeah and which seems like he's acting out some kind of an archetypal play mm, mm-hmm. you know right 
that is giving his life new meaning. Right. And it's totally fictional. Right. Not not only do the bears not know who he is right. or care about him at all. Right. But he's not even protecting them. Right. Right. He's totally yeah, he's not protecting. He's them. not stopping anything he, from happening. He never yeah. He never confronts any poachers. Yeah. He never prevents. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, for me, that's the weakness of the DSM categories. I said this in the last episode, but I'll just say it again, and that is, um, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to overstate this. It's not like the DSM diagnoses are useless. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and there's some reality to them. But the thing that's interesting is that, uh. DSM diagnoses are based on symptom clusters. Yeah. They're not based on etiology. And I just don't think people understand how different that is from medical diagnoses. Because we want to talk about mental illness as a disease. And I think that's a useful model to do to, to use to talk about, you know, mental illnesses as diseases. Yeah. At least pragmatically, it's useful for people who have mental illnesses because it kind of takes some of the pressure off, you know. Yeah. It makes it... it, it uh, it demoralizes it. It uh, it makes it amoral. Yeah. You know, not immoral, amoral. It just yeah. it's it's not a moral feeling that I'm like this. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not the same as like medical diagnoses. If we want, um, we don't diagnose Ebola based on symptoms. We yeah. diagnose it based on we pull your blood and you have little Ebola buds mm. swimming around in your blood. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's not the way it is. For uh, psychological diagnoses, it's these symptom clusters. It'd be the same thing as you going into the doctor. You have you have itchy eyes, uh, watery nose, what runny, runny nose. <laughs> You're just like what? <laughs> what am I saying? Watery, runny nose, and uh, just nose running with water. Yeah, and, waterfall nose. And them saying, "Oh, you have uh, itchy eyes, runny nose disease." Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, no, they wouldn't do that. They would they would try and figure out whether it's caused by allergies yeah. or whether it's caused by uh, a cold. Yeah. You know, and and then they would say, oh, it's allergies or, oh, it's a cold. But with with DSM diagnoses, um, that's not the way it is. It's just we just it's symptom. It's, it's clusters of symptoms that of seem to right. That seem to hold together, though. Yeah. So they seem to hold together. People who have manic episodes seem to also have depressive episodes. Manic episodes seem to have kind of the same structure across people. But the thing that's interesting is um, that, it, like, like we said last time, it doesn't speak to the origins mm-hmm. um, of these uh, disorders and it and it doesn't talk about their their function it doesn't talk about their meaning in the person's life mm-hmm. and in fact um from my from what i understand there are can be distinct um uh pathological processes that lead to the same symptom clusters and therefore the same mental illness yeah. even stuff like schizophrenia yeah from Uh, I was reading a piece recently where the author talked about how uh, researchers are now finding out that there's like three or four or five kind of distinct processes that can lead to someone having the same symptom cluster that we call schizophrenia. Yeah. So it's not just that your brain breaks in one way. It's like there's like three or four ways that it can break Mm -hmm. that are very separate from each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's why I feel like even... um, 
acknowledging that he has these symptoms that we call bipolar symptoms shouldn't keep us from talking about, you know, um, other kind of like the meaning of the meaning of symptoms and mm-hmm. um, where they where they come from and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like the DSM says not to do that anyway, you know. Right. Right. So anyway, so there you go. There's my um, there's my diagnosis of the day. Yeah. Um, I have a couple things that I wanted to talk about that that came from the film, um, and then whatever else you want to talk about. Well, let me say something about the diagnosis thing. Um, the the etiology does matter, right? So like um. If you view bipolar as uh, just a disease, like right. always just brain chemistry, right? Um, then you can miss out on, you can kind of put it in this box that's like the only treatment then is medication. You know what I'm saying? If, if you. If, or it's not important to deal with the the substance of it, the meanings of it to process. But if the etiology for his specific, you know, bipolar dynamic in his psyche Mm -hmm. is something like he's acting out this archetypal, uh, play Mm. kind of a thing, then understanding that suggests that, you know, if he could get some wise, you know, therapist or or something so a friend or some or something to kind of help him to shift that narrative towards a more realistic you know to instead of acting out this archetypal narrative to like integrate the archetypal elements into you know his his life in a more realistic way mm-hmm. you you're know? such a union yeah well it's like it's like you either act if you act out this hero's journey type of a thing, it's in a way possessing you and taking you away from reality. And so integrating that in kind of a union way mm. would be like listening to the wisdom of the archetype but still holding on to your uh, persona in reality and just like listening to that so it could funnel it into a more realistic i mean there the tra- part of the tragedy of timothy treadwell is there is there are way more productive ways he could have uh, helped the grizzlies you could make an argument that he barely helped them at all right you know right. maybe he helped them just a little bit by spreading awareness some people claim that he uh, hurt hurt them by by well, um, I mean, acclimating them to human presences and i think about the kids that he was doing presentations with and how many of those kids were concluding like oh these bears are like cuddly i mean in spite of what he says because he does he gives lip service to yeah oh yeah they're dangerous they can kill you but it's like if if i'm a kid in a classroom and and he's saying that to me (laughs) but at the same time i'm seeing him in the video well because he's also saying at the same time they will kill you Unless you make a connection with them. Right. 
Yeah. You know? So anyway, like if someone could have helped him to like integrate that so that he could instead of just hanging out with bears and thinking that he's doing something, mm-hmm. you know, made a real foundation that did, did fundraising and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I just want to comment really quickly. Um, so I'm listening to a Great Courses lecture series by Daniel Robinson, who's this great um, psychologist and philosopher and intellectual historian. And he talks about these kind of two wings of psychology, mm. one of them that want it to be almost like a STEM science, mm. you know, mm. and they think that kind of the we need to come up with universal rules that, you know, psychology should be trying to develop like laws of nature in the same way that physics and chemistry does, you know, uh-huh. and the other wing, which is kind of more interpretative, more humanistic, mm-hmm. he uses the term hermeneutic, yeah, you know, and um, how there's just this fascinating tension between the two. Um, the science wing feels like the other wing is just, you know, which would be like Jung and yeah, and uh, Freud and. And, and 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 a bunch of other folks uh-huh. just feel like what the what the heck are you doing like yeah. you're just making stuff up you know like yeah. that's not scientific it's it's an interpretation you know it's like you're doing literary analysis or whatever yeah. and the humanistic wing looks at the science wing and just says all the stuff that you are discovering is obvious or boring yeah. you know yeah. um or a distortion of the actual phenomena right know? right um anyway i'm that that's just what what came to mind as you were, as you were saying? I mean, yeah. for me, the these Jungian or psychoanalytic interpretations are helpful. I think they're kind of unavoidable if we're trying to make sense of human life. Yeah, you know, unless you just want to really take the perspective that it's all entirely reducible to brain states. Right. You know, if you don't want to think of humans as basically meat robots, mm-hmm. you have to kind of learn how to interpret yeah. the meaning of human actions you know yeah and you know jung is as good a way of doing that as any so anyway i don't know if that's yeah maybe that's a little off but i'm, I'm well, thinking I think, about that lately. i think the hard thing is that you know to the sciencey people i would i would say well what i'm given by my client is a piece of literature basically right so what el- how else do you a- analyze right you know a piece of literature it doesn't seem appropriate to you know like digitize you know all the all the words and to just look for like oh you know the more uh this word appears you know that's this mm-hmm. symptom or whatever it just seems like um taking it apart in a way that just totally loses it mm-hmm. but then to the to the interpretive people from a scientific perspective, I think you could also say, um, uh, no, what we are, you can't deny that part of what we are given, I mean, it does also present itself right. in this other way. Right. That um, it would be just wrong to just do literary interpretation. You know, it presents itself in this disease type, type of a way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think it's kind of like both, you know? Yeah, that's why I think psychology is cool because it has that tension kind of baked in. Yeah. You know? Um, so here is, let me just talk about the aspect of the film that most stood out to me. And I have a, I have two, um, 
connections that mm -hmm. I made to stuff that I've been reading and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so first, well, let me let me let me read to you a little section. I have a janky um, online transcript of the film, but it mm -hmm. seems pretty accurate. I was looking through it. Um, this is partway through the film, and Timothy Treadwell is kind of. It's such a cute shot. He's like, he's like, kind of lounging in a melancholy way on the ground next to a fox. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's just yeah, like so cute. And he's talking to the fox, and her name is Iris. Um, so he says, uh, "You're the best little fox." How did I come into this work, Iris? Did you ever get the story? I was troubled. I was troubled. I drank a lot. Did you know that? You wouldn't even know what that is. Because she's a fox. Yeah. <laughs> but I used to drink to the point of that I was, I guess I was either going to die from it or break free of it. But nothing, nothing Iris could get me from to stop drinking. Nothing. I went to programs. I tried quitting myself. I did everything that I could, could to try not to drink. And then I did everything I could to drink. So first of all, I just I think that's a really accurate description of yeah. someone who's like a real real addict. In my opinion, you kind of can't tell if someone's an addict until they start trying to stop. Yeah, you know, because yeah. some people they're using a lot of drugs and then it's like, hey, dude, you got to stop, and they're like, okay, and then uh -huh. they just stop, you know. Yeah, but it's it's the person who, you know, Tries starts to structure their whole life around stopping. Yeah, and still can't stop. Yeah, that I think is kind of where the phenomena of addiction shows most clearly. Yeah, you know, obviously there are edge cases and stuff like that. Yeah, so I, I like that description. Okay, yeah. here more Timothy. It was killing me until I discovered this land of bears, and realized they were in such great danger. They needed a caretaker. They needed someone to look after them, but not a drunk person, not a mess, not a person messed up. So I promised the bears that if I would look over them. Would they please help me be a better person? And they've become so inspirational and living with the foxes too that I did. I gave up the drinking. It was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle. And the miracle was animals. The miracle was animals. I live here. It's very dangerous. It's really dangerous. I run wild with the bears. I run so wild, so free. So like a child with these animals. Um, it's really cool and it's very serious. I'm here alone. Blah, blah, blah. He talks about being alone for a while. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> I, I kind of have, I, I have two things that, that, that stood out to me with regards to that. That's like such a beautiful quote. I know. And it's even better in the film because he's, you know, Saying having pillow, pillow talk yeah. with a fox. Yeah. You know? Uh, um, so first, um, the thing that's really interesting to me about this is, so he is kind of wrecking his life through drinking and drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And then how is he able to stop? It's by becoming um, the protector of the bears, mm -hmm. you know, and his life um, being structured around this new meaning and yeah. yada, 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 right? Yeah. So what's interesting to me about that is... Um, how it doesn't seem like an obvious swap that you could make. It seems like pretty clear. It seems to make more sense that a person who is an alcoholic could 
switch to being a drug addict uh-huh. or maybe could switch to like extreme sports yeah. or something. You know, it seems to kind of have a similar structure. Yeah. But it's isn't it interesting that he could stop doing drugs by kind of losing his his life in the in this Service. quest yeah. to be the protector of the bears, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's just kind of a non-obvious um substitution, you yeah. know? So what I thought of um when I was thinking about that was Freud's ideas about sublimation, you know? Mm-hmm. So Freud has this really interesting model of the psyche. Sometimes people call it the hydraulic model. And it's basically just like you have this energy, this psychic energy, which he calls libido, and it's got to go somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And if it's not going to go one place, it's going to go another place. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, there's a, a scholar like named uh, Jonathan Lear. He's a Freudian guy. Um, he He describes it as... Um, psychic uh, intensity. There's an intensity to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as this intensity is expressed in certain ways, it is diminished in others. It's fashionable to criticize Freud for having old-fashioned models of the mind, one based on 19th century models of hydraulics. But what he is pointing out here is an important truth, that there is an intensity to life that can be experienced self-consciously that is transferable and can show up in myriad ways. Uh, A physical pain can take the place of a mental pain. A sensitive area in the thigh can take the place of sensitive sensitivities elsewhere. He's talking about a specific Freud case. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of interesting to me that this, um, that he has this kind of intensity of in his life that is, he that's directing towards towards drugs and alcohol, and he's able to transfer that yeah. to this intensity of of looking of towards taking care of the animals. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, I have one more quote. Do you think it, that corresponds at all with like the twelve step experience of like a higher power? It seems a little different from a higher power because it's not like he looks to the bears to keep him sober like they have power they're giving him power over his addiction mm. i don't know what do you think so yeah so i guess that's the second thing that i that i noticed yeah. in this which is just the phenomena that i don't think people recognize enough which is that recovery from substance abuse not all the time but a lot of the time takes the form of almost a religious conversion yeah you know like like in the way that William James talks about in the varieties of religious experience. Mm-hmm. Someone is structuring their whole life around stopping and they can't stop somehow. Yeah. They just they still can't stop. They just as he describes, you know. Yeah. They they spend all their time and energy trying to not use and then all of a sudden a a switch flips mm-hmm. and they're trying everything they can to use and a lot of people who get into recovery report having a awakening, a moment of truth, you know? And then they, a lot of people talk about it as, as hitting rock bottom, yeah. you know? But it's not always that, you mm-hmm. know? Um, a moment of truth or a period of truth. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't have to necessarily be one moment. And also how people um, who 
not everyone, but a lot of people who recover wind up getting converted to something. Yeah. You know, yeah. which is kind of the AA, which is explicitly like the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 yeah. step model. And people who recover through that become almost converted to this cult like organization, uh-huh. which makes it sound bad. But like, you know, it's almost a re- it's almost a like new religion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Calling something a cult is kind of pejorative, but that, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm just yeah. getting at is, is it's this new way of life. Ha- you know, there are AA own, conventions and there are meetings every their day. Their own language almost. All, their own language, their own literature, yeah. all this kind of stuff. And people who recover a lot of times convert to that, yeah. you know. Um, so, and that's totally visible in this story, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, that conversion thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, so what did you say about the higher power? Um, I think, I don't know, T- Timothy talks about the bears saving him. Mm-hmm. You know, he talks about how he, he makes a promise to protect them if they will help him be a better person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so they almost are functioning for him psychologically mm-hmm. like a higher power. Yeah. Um. Which reminds me, um, there's this great quote by David Foster Wallace. Um, well, I don't know if I want to say it. Why? This is like the gem of the whole thing. I know, but it sounds kind of glib. Uh. You know, it almost sounds... I'll, 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 I'll say it. But here, here's... I mean, so it's a, it's in a commencement address he gave in Kenyon, Kenyon College called... Um, and it... They printed in a book called This is Water, but he says in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truth or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Yeah. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Yeah. Anyway. I can see what you're saying of it sounding glib. Like if Werner had that quote in in front of him, he would not put it in the film. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, but I guess the point, the I'm trying to like make a case for why that that's not a religious thing. Yeah. That's. I mean, obviously he's he's not he's making is he making a religious kind of statement in there, David Foster Wallace. I think it. I think there's definitely a religious side to that. Yeah. You know. But I think there's a psychological side to that too. Yeah. And that is um, something like we humans have a innate psychological need for wholeness, completion. You know what I'm saying? And to trust something outside that we perceive as separate from our conscious. It's almost like we need some kind of um m- m- uh transcendent meaning yeah. to structure our lives around yeah and there are some things that function really well in that setting 
for mm-hmm. us, you know, and for, for some people it's kind of religious ideals, yeah. you know, God or Yahweh or wicked mother goddess yeah. or the four noble truths for other people. It's almost kind of philosophical, you mm-hmm. know, um, beliefs or ethical commitments or something like that, you know, or just kind of uh, vague humanism and, you know, about the meaningfulness of human life and the need to take care of everyone or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and there are other things that you like can... Like bears. Right. <laughs> there are other things that can serve that function in a person's life that don't, mm-hmm. that when you put that at the center and make it the meaning of your life... You know, make it the thing that you worship, mm-hmm. to use David Foster Wallace's language, it produces symptoms. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't make your psychological life run well. One of those things that you could put there is drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you look at structurally how drugs function in the life of a drug addict, they become their answer to everything. Yeah. Their response to all of life's troubles and and trials, you know, yeah. is is the drugs. They serve the function of the, the the addict almost has a worshipful relationship yeah. towards drugs, you know. Yeah. Um, and David Foster Wallace talks about beauty or or wealth or fame. For some people, even kind of re- their religious ideals don't work for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. because they have a weird, um, vengeful, perfectionist understanding of uh, of some kind of higher power. Maybe they're kind of a Old Testament angry god type of person and Mm -hmm. so their life like worshiping that god i want to put worship there in like scare quotes you know Mm -hmm. um makes their life not function very well yeah you know yeah um and so there's that same structure of recovery from um substance abuse from addiction through like a conversion type experience yeah except for in Timothy Treadwell's case, it was untenable. Yeah. Because he was worshiping um, an idealized version of nature. Yeah. He was worshiping, he was like really, he was worshiping bears, but not really real bears. It was yeah. like a, a distorted understanding about like what the bears are and what they represented or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it totally is that, does. Is that um? Am I being? T- I'm a pretty religious guy. You know? uh-huh. Is that too religious? Where's the psychology in that? No, push no. back on me. No, no. I think uh, until you mentioned your religious guy, no one would be able to guess because you f- framed it very diplomatically. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, and I think it's totally plausible and. I think a lot of people can uh, relate to that, and a lot of psychologists would agree with that too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I almost wonder if, at the last moments, if he kind of had a wake-up call or something. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like, "Oh crap, what have I done?" Right, kind of a thing. But, right. um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. He worshipped uh, bears, and they literally ate him alive. Right. And his girlfriend. You know, he would have been f- actually fine if he just got killed by the bears. He kind of wanted that, you know. 
Yeah. But uh, the fact that his girlfriend also got eaten, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously the whole thing's a tragedy, but that kind of that kind of highlights how ill-conceived his worship was, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. I, I have one more quote, um, and what's it about? It's about, um, it's kind of going back to the Freudian um, uh, hydraulic metaphor a little mm. bit. In other, in other words, I think it's easy... It might be easy to criticize Freud for this weird, like, hydraulic metaphor of the mind. Although I don't think he literally thought that, you know, it was just like language that was helpful for him. Yeah, it's just a metaphor. And it's easy to, it's easy to see when you see something like this. Yeah. Where, like, the same kind of pathology, you push it down somewhere and it squirts out somewhere else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, So, uh, there's a a philosopher that I like named Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm. I'm not going to try and actually French his Sartre. name. Sure. Um, French existentialist philosopher, phenomenologist, and uh, he thought and wrote about psychoanalysis too, and so his interpretation is interesting. Mm. Yeah. So he talks about, um, let's see. He wants to talk about psychopathology He's critical of Freud, the way that Freud talks about it. Mm-hmm. What Sartre wants to talk about um, psychopathology as having kind of a an existential project that structures our life mm-hmm. that we might not be aware of. Yeah. In fact, we might, in interpreting our life and why we do the things we do, we might get it wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think... There's something that's plausible about that yeah. in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, we can think all the time about someone who um, goes through their whole life striving in certain ways and trying to achieve or whatever. And then, you know, late in life, they realize like, oh, shoot, I was really trying to get the respect of my father, mm-hmm. you right, know? Right. And they're like, well, th- that was going on the whole time. Yeah. But I didn't recognize it at the time yeah. because it wasn't explicit. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we have feelings or we do things and we don't explicitly realize why we're doing them. It's kind of implicit, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and then a- after the fact, we look back and figure out, oh, that's what was going on, you know? Yeah. So Sartre would say that that type of thing can happen, you know? Yeah. So the the existential project to become somebody, I'm doing scare quotes, mm-hmm. in the eyes of my father mm-hmm. can be structuring our lives um, in the background. Yeah. Um, and you say in the background rather than unconsciously because he didn't really see it as unconscious. Yeah, Sartre didn't believe that you could have unconscious thoughts. He thought yeah. that was an oxymoron. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, That's yeah. why you just say in the background. In the background, Yeah. right, yeah. Um. So he says, it's, it's, it is possible for me, um, as regards errors concerning myself, to impose upon myself refre- reflectively projects which contradict my initial project without, however, fundamentally modifying the initial project. So that's just kind of saying, you know, I have this project to uh, become somebody in the eyes of my father mm-hmm. and... But when I'm reflecting on my life, 
I think my my project is just to make it in the world of business and provide for my family. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I'm, my reflection is, is kind of, it's wrong, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, or at least it's not entirely correct, you know. Um, thus, for example, if my initial project aims at uh, choosing myself as inferior in the midst of others, so that's what he would call the inferiority complex, which is an Adlerian concept. Mm. And if stuttering, for example, is a behavior which is understood and interpreted in terms of the primary project, I don't know what that means, I can for social reasons and through a misunderstanding of my own choice of inferiority decide to cure myself of stuttering. I can even succeed in it. Yet without having ceased to feel myself and to will myself to be inferior. In fact, I can obtain a result by using merely technical methods. This is what we usually call a voluntary self-reform. But these, so, and here's the crux, but these results will only displace the infirmity from which I suffer. Another will arise in its place and will in its own way express the total end which I pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, how understandable is that? Yeah, I understood it. Okay, so... But I'm pretty smart. In other words, for the guy who um, is secretly trying to uh, become somebody in the eyes of his father... Yeah. And he thinks that he's just trying to provide for his family. I'm just trying to provide for you guys, damn it, you know? Yeah. He might recognize, oh, you know, I I kind of am getting a bit too... Uh, I'm kind of a workaholic lately. Yeah, he might try to uh, rectify that, but let let me see if I can uh, if I can say it. Yeah. according to my understanding. So say it according to the workaholic guy who's trying to satisfy his father, and then see if you can talk about Timothy. Yeah. So um, this example of a workaholic guy um, who he doesn't realize it, but it's in the background. He's trying to get the approval of his father. He could recognize, oh, I'm out of balance and correct his uh, workaholism by reading a book about it or, mm-hmm. or getting some app that helps him to, you know, uh, cut it down. Um, and he might su- he might succeed. He That's might, the thing. And he might succeed, but if he doesn't um, come to um, – he, he could succeed without even touching on the overall – project Mm -hmm. and so i guess the implication is he might succeed with his workaholism but it might it would shift his overall project would would inevitably manifest in some other area of his life he might stop getting drunk on workahol yeah but then kind of furiously try and rebuild his home Mm-hmm. You know, and have a perfectly manicured lawn because his dad always liked perfectly manicured lawns. Or, you know, it would yeah. like pop up somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, how does, so with Timothy, how does that connect that? So, the, I, so this is another way of describing um, Freud's kind of hydraulic idea of the mind. Uh-huh. Where you have this certain amount of energy, and if it's not going to express itself this way, it's going to express itself that way. Yeah. So it would be something like... We don't really know Timothy's project. No, that's correct. Yeah. That's right. We we don't know... Well, we we, we, we don't know... We might have to go... Well, like, 
know about his childhood or something to know about his project. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it, it would be something that would um, be equally satisfied by either being an alcoholic mm-hmm. or being a bearaholic. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the, that's kind of, the, that's yeah. the um, Sartrean um, explanation yeah. of the same phenomena. Yeah. I feel like it had something else, but now I don't remember it. I have one more thought. And that is, so I mentioned that I have a kind of a funny uh, relationship with animals. It's not that weird. It's just I like pets. And, uh, but in that, I kind of relate to Timothy um, because um, there is a delusion uh, involved in having certain kinds of pets, like, and perhaps all kinds of pets. Like, you have a hamster, as I do. What's your hamster's name? Sister Mary Clarence, after Whoopi Goldberg's character in Sister Act 2. Excellent. Um, <laughs> and uh, the only reason to have a pet is to... Um, feel like you have a relationship with this creature. Mm-hmm. But it's a delusion because you don't, with a hamster anyway. The hamster doesn't know who I am. Mm-hmm. The hamster doesn't care about me. Mm-hmm. If I sold the hamster tomorrow, it wouldn't care one single bit right. and wouldn't miss me or anything. Right. You know? So the relationship is really just in the mind of the pet owner. And like, even with pets like dogs or even horses, I feel like there is a little bit of the, of delusion, you know. Um, so you're dogs, gonna get a lot of hate mail for this. I know, but dogs. Well, I love dogs, you know, and cats. You know, I I love pets. I think they recognize one person above another person and seem to care and want to take care of that person. They do, they do. But I still think we we can build it up more. Right than it is. I think farmers are probably good. At, you know, seem seem like they're better mm. at the you know not being delusional about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, than like pet owners like me. But like, I always think though of this uh, f- this film uh, called A Separation, where um, this uh, man is taking care of his um, uh, father who has Alzheimer's. And the man's wife is like, why are you, like, letting this consume your life? Why don't you just get a nurse or something for your dad? Because he doesn't even know who you are mm. anymore. And he says, yeah, but I know who he is, mm. you know? And so that's kind of how I think of, pet, you know, pet ownership. It's like, yeah, Sister Mary Clarence doesn't know who I am, but I know who she is, and mm. I can still love her. Uh-huh. You know, you are gonna get devoured by hamsters. <laughs> I can feel it in my bones. No, but that it seems to be the the, the level of delusion that's like fine, you know, healthy and normal and fine. Because we recognize that it's a game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a delusion. You mm-hmm. know, and and it doesn't make the feelings any less real. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just one way. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, uh, yeah, obviously it can get. Like, Timothy is not the only one who's, like, fallen into this delusion. Here's the thing. There's some, there are people with, like, ten, 
you know, macaws in their house, mm-hmm. you know, and it's consumed their life. Here's the thing. Our old <clears throat> dachshund, Honey, mm-hmm. not only recognized me and felt the same way that I feel about her towards me. Yeah. She's the only one that's ever understood me. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, well, that's where dog stuff can get, can feel, can get in that area of delusion is if I feel like. Oh, and it's not a delusion. Uh-huh. For me. Like if, oh, okay, so, wow, that's a very exceptional animal. Yeah, she is very exceptional. But, like, if she we was. feel like in peace. this dog accepts me for exactly who I am and no one else does, mm-hmm. that's super nice and that feeling is, is real, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's not like the dog knows you. Mm-hmm. Like, the dog accepts everything that feeds it exactly how mm-hmm. it is, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, I mentioned that, um, because that's kind of the note that Werner ends on. Mm, yeah. So Werner is good at making this not, um, about is this good or bad, Right. you know, it's like there are beautiful aspects of, of, uh, Timothy Treadwell's journey and tragic, dark aspects of it, you know, right. and we can just kind of let that be. But he says, um, the meaning the meaning that Werner takes from Timothy's life is different from the meaning that Timothy took from it. Right. And it, it's that when we look, when we project things onto nature and, and creatures, it doesn't, the mistake Timothy made was thinking that it, it's revealing the, the truth about the, about nature or the bears, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's revealing the truth about him and his own heart. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful aspects is his he had a, a sweet a sweetness, mm-hmm. a real sweetness in his heart, mm-hmm. you know, um, that this adventure like revealed to the world, you know, and uh, and just because it was based on delusion doesn't make it any less sweet, you know right. right. Well, what do you think, internet? How did we do? Did we uh, Talk. Did you guys notice anything else in this film that we didn't touch about? Touch Give, about. Send us your theories. Send us your theories. Send us uh, what we didn't notice. Suggest other films for us to talk about. Um, yell at Scott because he doesn't understand your relationship with dogs. Hey, you saw me last night cuddling up my dog packs. Yeah, but you were cuddling with him, but in your heart, you just thought he has dead eyes like a shark and doesn't even know anything about you. No, he knows me. He he does know me, but he could... Anyone else who gave him the attention that I did, he would switch over in That's a not true. Yeah. He loves you. For you. He loves you for you. Well, that's what I like to feel. Our uh, Reach out to us on Twitter. We are at... Pop Psych Pod. Um, our email address, poppsychpod at gmail.com. On Facebook, we're Pop Psychology Podcast. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. You guys are amazing. You're the best people we've ever met. Every single one of you. And uh, Excelsior. I wanted to work in the 
this joke that I have, which is I want to make a film. Um, it follows two guys, and one of them is a pirate, and he spends his whole life looking for buried treasure mm. and then realizes that he was really looking for his father. Uh-huh. Oh. And then the second guy spends his whole life trying to develop a relationship with his father and then realizes that he really was looking for All he was treasure. looking for the whole time was buried treasure. <laughs> yeah. So that was the joke. Maybe I'll cut it in. That's a funny one. Yeah. All right.